The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. We have a slightly misplaced musician this morning, so our thanks to Ben Rudiak Gold. I'm sorry, I can take this off. <laughs> our thanks to Ben Rudiak Gold for that spontaneity and Bill Gantz on piano. Good morning and welcome to everyone with us, those here in this space and those joining us on live stream. I am Dennis Adams, worship associate and I'm joined on the chancel this morning by Vanessa Southern, senior minister here at UUSF. 
We welcome our guest musician here today, if he arrives, North Carolina native violinist, fiddler, Andrew Finn McGill. So glad to have everyone here with us today. And everyone else who is making the music, the live stream, and co-creating worship here, which includes all of you. We hope if you are here or on live stream, you have an order of service so you can follow along in worship. For those of you who are joining us on live stream, if you have any issues or problems at any time, please know that Joe Chapeau is monitoring the chat to answer any questions. A quick COVID note, those of us up here who will speak or sing without masks are all vaccinated and boosted and had an antigen test this morning. Thank you all for masking and for your care for one another. Today's service is about hermits. When I was little, I wanted to be a hermit. It looked like a pretty easy job. And besides, they have no peer pressure. So, we'll be singing hymn number 90, not 361, number 90, from all the fret and fever of the day. And so let's begin our time of worship together, singing our opening hymn of the morning, number 90. The words and music are in your order of service. Now to draw us a little closer into the service together, we'll have our chalice lighting, words to which are in your order of service. We light this chalice, a symbol of Unitarian Universalism, calling into this space all of us who are part of this community, near or far, wherever this hour finds you, know you are with us too. For those of you at home, feel free to light your own candle or chalice if you have one. Please say with me the words of our chalice lighting printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, 
and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. Well, either Mercury is in retrograde, whatever that means, or this service, which is about the hermit's life, is cooperating to make this a service about surrender. <laughs> Some of the things in your order of service this morning are correct. Many already, you can tell, are not. The offering is not for the UU Service Committee. It's for this congregation during most of our month of March when we take our pledges, make our financial commitments to the life of this congregation for the next fiscal year, which starts in July, we do those, take those offerings only for this community of faith. Ask everyone to concentrate and think about what this community means to you and what you're able to do. And so centering down and focusing here for a while. And then throughout the year, so many, the vast majority of our offerings are taken and given away in a growing habit of generosity beyond our walls that just seems to be building miraculously and beautifully among us. I did want to let people know that our goal for the fundraising for this year is the same as last year, $750,000 given from all of us. According to our means, it's the same amount as we asked for last year. And I want to say that that's to let everybody know that we think we can do the same work or grow our work even with that same amount of giving if we're thoughtful about it this year. And having asked people to dig deep financially, we want you to know that when we ask you to raise your pledge, it's out of need and in good faith. And when we don't, I hope you see it as a sign of our good faith for you too and the various needs you all need to take care of in your lives. The theme this year is banners, putting up banners on that little triangle of space where Geary splits, and there used to be ones, and we took them down. And you'll see in your order of worship, but then down on the bulletin board, just really um, slimmed down versions, simplified versions of what we might put up, the wording, so you can focus on the wording. And let us know, go to that table and put up words on an index card so that we can pull it together in the week ahead and then give you a revised draft with color and design next week, and then we'll get them printed. So please, let us know words or phrases. The words that are up now are connected right to our mission vision statement that we passed during these last few years. But the phrases, too, are ones that have a lot of possibilities, and we want to hear your creativity. So please go there to put up your words. You'll see these pendant banners. If you've made a pledge, please write your name on one of them, and we're going to keep hanging them all around the lobby in this season with the theme of making it a banner year. And if you haven't made your pledge and you want to, there are forms, and you can make it today and put it in the box. It will be, if you fold it over and put it in the box, it will be um, confidential and we will make a record of it and you can put your name on a pennant right there and then. And for everyone, the over 40, almost 50 people who've made your pledges already, thank you so much. We're definitely gonna make it a banner year. 
So welcome, everyone. I hope you do have your order of service, though you'll have to pay attention to see whether or not we follow it. If you're new, welcome especially, and there should be a connection form in front of you or online, and fill it out, and we'll send you our weekly Wednesday Flame, which is our online newsletter, but also our Friday email of the live stream link in case you need it and the order of service in case you're going to be joining us remotely that day. And in the order of service, I hope you all see, especially folks joining us for the first time, all of the programs and events that are part of the life of this congregation, or a lot of them, especially the ones coming up um, soon. To highlight one of those that we're especially excited about next week, I want to invite Lori Lai. Lori is our treasurer of the congregation who also leads so many incredible initiatives in this congregation, and you'll hear a little bit about a program that's part of one of those right now. Happy, happy Women's History Month to all. And uh, with reproductive justice under history-making challenges today, what can anyone do to push back? UUSF Forum and the Women's Rights Group will host a talk by Anna Miller, Illinois State Representative and Reproductive Justice Advocate, next week on Zoom and at UUSF, 9.30 a.m., March 19th. Anna is also the daughter of Bruce Neuberger, who runs the forum. Um, see the notice passed out today and in your order of service for more details. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to have to see what happens with music this morning. But I want to tell you all that for my ordination, so this feels like a cycle back 26 or 7 years, I hired a jazz quartet with Stan Strickland, who was a really well-known saxophonist, at my own expense, and I didn't have a lot of money. And I served my internship and was ordained by a very old church in Boston, and my, min my minister was old school, and everything started on time. And when the ordination started and everyone was gathered, none of the musicians were present. Holding off two minutes, the pianist came in the door, and so we opened with a piano solo. By the second piece of music, the saxophonist had arrived, so we had a duet, and later the bass player came, so we had a trio. And by the end of the service, quietly the drummer had set up his kit, and we ended with all four. I stood in the line humiliated and embarrassed by my inability to manage this moment and people probably thinking I had ruined the event for the church, but instead what happened was miraculous. People in line started to thank me for the beautiful building of music that happened through the service. How it powerfully ended with a crescendo that was symbolic of the new beginning I was on. So let's open ourselves to the miraculous as we greet one another.
Well, you already sound like the noise that I need you to make for our story. Good morning, good morning. So this morning, I need you to make the sound of a fly. Can you do that? Zzz. And it's going to go in and out, okay? So let's maybe start over here and, and go over here and come back, okay? So watch my hand. Oh, perfect. Lovely. That's great. Okay, let's start our story. So there was a young man who lived in China. Outside, everyone knew him to be calm and peaceful. His family and friends loved how calm and peaceful he was. But on the inside, so much turmoil. Joy and love and energy and questions. Oh my goodness, the questions. Just bubbling and inside him. Well, his family and friends, knowing him to be this calm and peaceful person on the exterior, wanted him to be a monk. So he went to the monastery. Did I hear flies already? No. He went to the monastery where he sat with the masters and they observed him to be calm and peaceful. And yet, inside, he still got this turmoil of doubt and questions and joy and love and all this energy. Well, one of the things that he had to do to stay at the monastery and be affirmed was to go up to the top of a hill or top of a mountain and sit quietly to find that calm and peace. And after two weeks of doing this, the master of masters would observe him and decide whether he could stay or not. So he went up to the top of the mountain, sat calmly and peacefully, only for a fly to land on his nose. He wiggled his nose, trying to get the fly off, but the stubborn fly stayed. He wiggled his nose again, and it continued to stay. So then, we're going to start from this side now, he went like this, and the fly danced and came back to his nose. And the young man thought, oh, it was really wonderful to move. And so he did it with his other hand. Ready? And the fly landed again. Well, pretty soon, the young man, OK, you got to keep going now, all right? The young man started to dance with the fly. And they started to move around. And they started to get energy from the earth and from the sky and from animals and from the joy and the love. And they danced and they danced. And hours and minutes and days passed, and pretty soon it was the end of this two weeks' time. And he went up to the mountaintop to sit down, only for the fly to land on his nose again. He did not see the master of masters sitting off to the side. And they started to dance. And pretty soon, the master of masters came up and 
The young man got really embarrassed because he's supposed to be calm and quiet and peaceful. And the master of masters rushes up and says, young man, you must teach me this movement that you have created, this movement that has balanced the calm and the energy, that has harnessed the earth and the sky, that has harnessed animals and birds. And then you must teach it to the others. And so it came to be that a young man's creativity and his dance with the fly started the meditation movement of Tai Chi. Thank you. And now it's time for our covenant and doxology, remembering that our covenant is promises that we make to each other and to ourselves. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. I've been public speaking for a while and I'm nervous still. What the heck, why does that happen? Um, so my name is Gregory and I love this church. And I have five minutes right now, look I'm shaking. I have five minutes right now to share with you why this liberal faith community deserves your pledge. I'll start off by saying I'm a queer misfit who had the pleasure of making this gorgeous hat with my partner Adrian last night just for this special moment. As I was sitting there, though, and rereading my notes and fixing them, I guess, I was thinking about how in so many other places it's now illegal to be a drag queen in public. And to think that I could wear this hat and have five people already come up to me and say, fabulous. <laughs> I'm a church boy that loves everything about our Sunday gathering. Uh, at the end of last service, when the organ played the way it was, I was in tears. 
I value the multi-generational nature of this community and the fierce leaders uh, willing to bring us youngins along, Dolores, Betsy, and our ministry team. And I love this, I never finished it. It just says, ooh la la, we have a great ministry team. <laughs> I'm a former Baptist pastor and I was pushed out because of my leftist politics. But every Unitarian Universalist welcomed me and they, opened me, they, they welcomed me with open arms. And they helped me see that they've been up to the same work that I was doing for many more years. I was raised by a single mom. I had two sisters and was radicalized through feminism in college. After going to evangelical churches that hated women, I thank the goddess I found a church led, co-led by two very powerful women. Dolores, I've mentioned, and Betsy are two other fierce, powerful women that have taught me so much about what it means to do intergenerational work as we try to change this world and make it a more beautiful place. At work, I'm an eco-activist. I work for California Interfaith Power and Light, and it's so funny because when I met Betsy, uh, and I was telling her about my job, she goes, well, you know, I'm so sick of just sending postcards to my, my representatives. I want to get in the streets. <laughs> Heck yeah! <laughs> I'm obsessed with our church's history, especially Thomas Starr King. I love being part of a community that has been fighting for a better world for a long, long time. It's our job to keep fighting. And with your pledge, we can do just that. So please commit to pledging to this community so we can keep making it a better world. Thank you. And Gregory, you're part of why the work of greeting people and being a welcoming place is so important because each time a new you comes in, we are a new we and we are better for it. Let's sing together our meditation on breathing. So if you're new here, you won't know this as well, though it's super easy to sing. It's when I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. If you want to see the word, uh, yes, 1009 in the Teal Hymnal, if that helps you. And there are um, some harmonies which you can learn over time, and those of us who know them can, can join in. But let's, inviting us into the spirit of meditation that follows, let's sing that together, and Ben will lead us.
I'm going to strike our bowl gong today just simply as an invitation to hear its ringing and the dissipation back into silence as a chance for us to even more fully pull ourselves deeply into this time and space together. Catherine Doherty, a lay leader who took vows of service in the Catholic Church, once wrote these words. Deserts, silence, solitudes are not necessarily places, but states of mind and heart These can be found in the midst of the city and in every day of our lives. We need only to look for them and realize our tremendous need for them. They will be small solitudes little deserts, tiny pools of silence. But the experience they will bring, if we are disposed to enter them, may be as exultant and as holy. I invite us then to find the little deserts and pools of silence and small solitudes available for you in this moment and for us together. As we hold a quiet that is made sacred by the holding of it together.
And now our offering, which is for the works and ministries of this congregation, will be both given and gratefully received. Thank you, Ben and Bill. I think at the end of the service, we'll have people yell out what a hymn is that they, for the postlude that they've wanted to sing and haven't. So in a very ununitarian universalist act, whoever yells the loudest, <laughs> if Bill knows that hymn, will win. We some of you may not know, have a resident poet in our congregation, Robert Lovett Smith. He publishes a sonnet a day on Facebook, has for a couple years now. And one day, not so long ago, it was this one. The loneliest house on earth. On an especially rainy day, I happen upon an online article 
about a tiny hut, Buffa di Perero, 900 feet up on the side of a sheer cliff at a remote location in the Italian Alps. It's said to have been built by soldiers seeking shelter during a seemingly endless campaign in the Great War and is really only visible from the air. Even then, it's difficult to spot in photos being essentially the same arid brown as the surrounding rock. Brochures call it the loneliest house on earth. And while I concede that it may be so, as the winter wind rattles the windows of this tiny apartment at sea level, where I've been virtually combined, confined for what is now more than five years, I am forcibly reminded that loneliness, ever ubiquitous, can find us anywhere. Of course, I had to look up the loneliest house on earth after reading this sonnet. It's built, as Bob describes, into the side of a gray mountain called Monte Cristallo in the Dolomites, a steep drop below but without facing brick walls, a slanted roof, framed windows, and a couple of chairs just outside on the tiny deck, I guess you'd call it. Let me share a few photos if we can get our camera. Can you see this? Should I put it down in the corner, given our so this is the mountain shot. This is a close-up. And if you wonder what it looks like from perched on its front stairs, so to speak, I'll put the copies out at coffee hour. It's a great lookout, a protected hideout. You can see why soldiers who were mad enough to dream it up would build it, lowering bricks as they must have had to from the mountain's summit. Having brought those bricks with them there at great effort, how quiet it looks, though. With all the blessings, and I suppose all the challenges of being remote. No street noise, no street fares, no Jehovah's Witnesses asking if you're saved, and who knows if we are anyway. Just that view, that expanse, and the whistling wind. For years, my screensaver was one of the 24 Eastern Orthodox monasteries built in Meteora in Greece. It was this one, Holy Trinity Monastery. Perched as it is atop a pillar of stone 1,300 feet off the ground. Maybe it's not fair to use these as your vintage, especially the last one, as your vision for monastic life. But even so, 
Even not so grand, monastic life has for a while had a special lurking place in my heart. Periodically, this shadowed figure comes out from behind the stone arches of a cloister in my mind, robed, and bends her finger in that gesture that says, come here, come on. The truth is, I love this world, and pretty frequently I love the idea of escaping from it, too. I love people, and I adore some good quiet. And I have this curiosity about what the hermetic life would look like. So in January, when I was looking for a fun book to read, I saw this title, The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit by Michael Finkel. I leapt at the chance. I mean, it's sabbatical, and I can read about a hermit. This is perfect. Have any of you read this book? Well, it turned out a little different than I imagined when I ordered it. I imagined it was about some monk, the last one maybe, living in Holy Trinity Monastery or one of the other meteoras, maybe one that only had room for one person. It turns out it was about someone named Christopher Knight. Does that name ring a bell? Hmm. He was a man who at age 20 in 1986, with no real planning, went out into the woods of rural Maine and stayed for 27 years. When Knight was discovered in 2013 and the news hit the press, writer Michael Finkel was intrigued and reached out to Knight, even visited him uninvited a couple of times and pieced together the man's story and a little of the why behind it all. The young Knight was raised in a fairly normal family of self-sufficient Maine folks, well-schooled in how to use his hands and fix and make things, which would prove useful. Even so, though, Knight himself couldn't even really explain why one day he drove deep into the Maine woods on ever more remote and dirt byways until finally the car ran out of gas and Knight took out his backpack and stepped into the woods. In the beginning, he camped in various locations, but at some point he found this thick wooded area surrounded by enormous boulders, almost impossible to see or access from the surrounding trails, and he built a camp and a life there. In all his years there, he never lit a fire, no matter how cold it got lest he draw attention to himself. He tried to make no noise, so there was no singing at this campsite. He survived taking what he needed <clears throat> from a set of nearby cabins and a retreat center, places that were often abandoned on weekends and through entire late fall, winter, and early spring seasons. Knight felt guilty about stealing and he tried to be respectful of what he took, never taking people's jewelry or valuables or anything other than what he needed. Food, tools, tarps, a generator one time, fuel. But he did steal. And ultimately, it was the more sophisticated monitoring systems that people installed one of which alerted local officials of a nearby break-in. And the local official 
who was fed up and frustrated by decades of and hundreds of break-ins, who was Knight's undoing. Finkel meets Knight at this moment. Knight arrested for stealing in jail and then visits him later when Knight is on monitored release at home living with his aged mother. If it weren't for this arrest, it's not even clear that Knight would ever have emerged from the woods. So much of this story is interesting and intriguing because of how bizarre and astounding it was and is. The endurance alone, including long, bitter, main winter seasons with Knight losing weight each winter before spring hits, and he reports a couple of nights in which he teeters each year in storms and moments of extreme temperatures on something that puts him at the edge of losing his life and emerges each year amazed when he has made it through again. So why? Why does this man stay in this campsite, a man with family and connections, intelligence and skills? Why? What calls him here into the woods? I suppose it's what other hermits and lovers of solitude through the ages have sought and found in similar places. Among the things Knight describes is how he comes into relationship to the world around him differently, how he knows it intimately, but more so becomes a part of it, how his boundaries fall away like so many other describe, others describe mystics and forest dwellers of other religious ilk and their secular equivalents. Identity isn't about a person in a mirror anymore. In fact, in all his years, Knight never steals a mirror when he goes into a home. Though he keeps his beard trimmed neatly in the woods without it. Life and identity is more than self-reference for him. It's about the presence to the seasons and the migration of birds and the rolling blazes of flowers and the smell of earth freezing and thawing and the entirety and the richness of the world around him that he is interconnected with. And there is a fullness in this life. I was never lonely, Knight writes. Once you taste solitude, you don't grasp the idea of being alone, he says. Thomas Merton, the monk and mystic, once wrote that the true solitary does not seek himself. He loses himself. This loss of self was precisely what Knight experienced in the forest, Finkel says. And also, it seems, the finding of this much more expansive self. The lives and teachings of hermits and monks date way back in time. The Tao Te Ching written in China somewhere between the 6th and 5th centuries before the Common Era was, according to one piece of lore written by, it's attributed to the master Lao Tzu, but there's a piece of lore which says that the teacher wrote it and then disappeared into the woods forever. 
into the wilderness. I didn't know that about this text, that it's often sought out as a guide by hermits. It does, though, teach central to the words, to the ideas in it, this idea of wu-wei, which some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, this, this idea which literally translates closest to this idea of action, non-action, this thing that's hard to define, but but can look like the boy who spontaneously was moved to chase and dance with the bee, the fly, in the story today. Can look and feel like a merging and a flow, be like the grass that bends with the breeze, the text says. The text describes so much that comes out of solitude that night also describes and lives. This connection with something deep that changes you and your relationship and movement in and with the world. By his own admission, Knight didn't speak a word in 27 years. In those 27 years, Finkel explores at one point that it's possible that Knight was on the autism spectrum. Finkel does talk about how overwhelming a lot of sensory input is for him. And Finkel names how biologists have also found that our desire to be alone may in fact be genetic. Low levels of the hormone um, oxytocin, that bonding hormone that's most frequently talked about between um, mothers and their babies, and high amounts of the hormone vasopressin, which can suppress our need for affection, may in fact result in some of us needing fewer interpersonal relationships. Knight could have been affected by either of these biological realities. But maybe the question is, do we need to describe a way or pathologize even choices like nights to court deep solitude and silence. There is so much also that you might say is wired in us to love silence. And nature, the biophilia that's being studied now, did you know that when we're silent, not even reading, not silent reading, truly silent, that the outer layer of our brain, the cerebral cortex that processes sound and language, finally, it turns out, gets to rest? And when that happens, you and I, studies show we get access to deeper parts of our brain to what's called the subcortical zones. People who lead busy lives, noisy lives, Finkel writes, are rarely granted access to those areas. Silence, then, may actually be not the opposite of sound, but another world entirely in our experience, a deeper level of thought, a journey, he says, to the bedrock of life itself. Similarly, many studies show how noise and distraction are literally toxic to our well-being. Sound waves that move through the air, 
cause the tiny bones in the middle ear to vibrate, which translates them into electrical signals that travel the nervous system into the auditory cortex of the brain so that even asleep, our body has to respond to noise, is kept thrumming and vigilant at some level. City dwellers apparently live with elevated levels of stress hormones just from the sounds that we have consciously become accustomed to hearing, but our bodies haven't. The word noise, Finkel points out, is derived from the Latin word nausea. Silence, then, real silence, freedom from input and distraction, is this doorway to things like a deeper kind of rest, a brain healing, maybe, another way of experiencing life. Christopher Knight was happy and grounded reading his stolen cache of books and magazines by twilight on his camp chair, brain both quiet and alive. But in jail, he is fast undone. His facial hair grows long. He can't be moved to clip it and tend to it. The constant noise and disruption unmoors him. I suspect, he writes back to Finkel, more damage has been done to my sanity in jail in months than years, decades in the woods. Eventually, he can no longer even write back. I miss the woods, he says. I did find a place where I was content. Contentedness is not a gift to be undersold. So I sit after reading the book about this eccentric man and life, wondering who is maladjusted <laughs> and who has found a way to live well, deeply. The answer, I suspect, is a both and, for me at least. The truth is, I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever want to be wholly alone all the time or bound to vows of silence. I don't think I could keep them. But I read once something that has repeatedly been useful to me as a framework. It was the idea that some things in life are problems to be solved, but some things are dilemmas to be managed. And it strikes me that this balance between a love of busyness and silence, of being in the world and withdrawn from it, that this is one of those dilemmas to be managed in the spiritual life. All of us having to find our place of comfort in that mix. But that we do so knowing and be re being reminded, even by night's extreme choice, like all of those hermits of old, that if we want the healthy falling away of boundaries that makes us bigger than just this entity, but connected to everything, and that unleashing of that part of our mind that is 
well, that makes its appearance in the clearings we allow it to play and to synthesize and to create and the way it only will or most beautifully will in those spacious places we can create for it. If we want our brains to rest, we need to find a little more of what Christopher Knight found. As Bob's poem at the beginning about that loneliest house on earth pointed out, loneliness can visit us in the brick house built on the side of those gray dolomite mountains or in our apartment, which is to say that solitude and silence can visit us in all those same places too. Hermits can reside in plain sight in each of us. In fact, you might be happy to know that the modern hermit movement has resources available, some of which can be found on the website hermitary.com, though Finkel joked that no more than one or two people are ever on it at a time. We make our retreats where we can but we make them. Henry David Thoreau, who retreated to his cabin in Walden Pond for two years, two months, and two days, said, not till we have lost the world do we begin to find ourselves. Thoreau, said Christopher Knight, offering his appraisal of the great transcendentalist, Thoreau was a dilettante. May each of us find places and times and ways to be anchored into the deepest parts within us, knowing that they are fed as they are by silence and solitude and retreat. So blessings, my urban and live stream hermits. Blessings in your journeys inward, deeper, to the place that throws our sense of ourselves wide open and grounds us to the most beautiful and life-giving of energies. Amen. We're going to sing fittingly hymn number 16 in the gray hymnal, the old shaker tune, "'Tis a gift to be simple." Why don't we sing it through twice? I invite you to rise as you're able. Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free, tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed to turn to Till by turning to
put down your hymnals, remain standing. If you want to, you can join hands with the people next to you or just hold out your arms in a gesture of receptivity. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Okay, hymn to sing. What? No suggestions. What? Did you hear anything? What? Number one, may nothing evil cross this door. All right, let's do it. I don't think I know this one. <laughs> Number one. All right, I'm going to be sight reading this, folks. <laughs> it's a good training part, you can't tell.
Laughter drown the raucous shore.